Amen. Thank you, Caleb. Well, I hope you had a good Sunday afternoon. Thank you for coming back this evening. Well, last week, I'm sure Caleb did a fine job getting us uh, acclimated to the book of Titus, the third of Paul's pastoral epistles. Uh, I was outside most of the time on parking lot duty. I heard him for four or five minutes, and what I heard was phenomenal and right on ticket. But having not heard it, I may tread over something he said the last time. And so uh, forgive me for that, Caleb, but... Uh, let me rehearse uh, some of the thoughts of Titus as we begin the book. This is the third of what scholars call pastoral ep epistles or pastoral letters, letters written by the apostle to two different men, just about the same time, men that were in the ministry. They are of great benefit, not only to those in the ministry, but of the rest who are in the pew as part of a church. Um, the first, it's, it's important to tie these three together, and I'll try to do it very briefly. First Timothy is about the importance of the church, that it is the ground and pillar of the truth. And if there ever was a message that needed to be preached hard and straight and strong in our day is, is the importance of a local assembly. Uh, in my mind, and I am unapologetic in this, you, you cannot separate... Christ and his church. To be involved and faithful and loyal within an assembly is to be faithful and, and loyal to Christ. Not to be involved in an assembly is not to be faithful and loyal to Christ, period. I have scriptural basis for that. Uh, when Saul was attacking the church and he was confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Tying forever the body of Christ with Christ himself. You cannot separate the head from the body. So beware of that kind of philosophy where intense involvement or at least involvement within a local church is an option for you. Uh, biblically, that's, that's not, not biblical. So the church in 1 Timothy is the ground and pillar of the truth. It is the place where God showcases the gospel of message. It is not simply to be an inclusive or ex exclusive place where people kind of come and worship as they want. It is to be a place where the, the truth is transforming lives, which sends light out into this dark world, storming the gates of hell and allowing the gospel to penetrate people's lives. And, and, and that could be from you going out and telling it. That could be from things happening out there that send people to us. Many times that happens. But when they see a difference in your life, everywhere you go, they want to know why you are so free from sin. The second book, uh, Second Timothy, is a book about the preacher himself, his qualifications, the charges to preach the gospel, uh, what happens within the church with the pillar of truth, centralizing on Christ himself. Titus, which is the third pastoral epistle, it's about the duties within the church, what the church is supposed to be doing now. Uh, let's go to the book itself and draw some thoughts. You will notice uh, the audience uh, that, by the way, Titus ministered 
on an island called Crete. It is the largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. It is a Greek island. It is about 150 miles long. It is about 50 miles wide. It is very mountainous, has a lot of fertile valleys. It has coves, very few beach coves, as Bob was just informing him. Most of the coves within that island are rock cliff down to the shore. Back at Paul's time, there were about 100 cities on this island. So when he says in verse 5, look at it with me, this is why I left you in Crete, we'll look back at that, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. So there's 100 towns, not necessarily 100 churches, but many churches he had to go around and it wasn't just the central church of Crete. There was a lot of fellowships out there and Titus was left there. Titus was a guy that Paul sent on difficult missions. Anytime you see Titus, he's always going something, somewhere doing something for Paul. And when you have a man that you trust you can send to get a job done, that says a lot about a man. It says a lot about Titus. Well, look at the audience, if you will, within that uh, island. Look at verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. Paul describes to Titus what kind of people lived on the island of Crete in verse 12. One of the Cretans, Cretans, I'm sorry, a prophet of their own said, this is not flattering, Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. The King James is slow bellies. Uh, this is fascinating that these churches were organized and ministering in this type of culture. I know it's not politically correct to label a people group, but here one of their own poets did it, one of their own writers, one of their own prophets, and Paul simply communicates, this is the society you're living in. Let's go over it again. Liars, animalistic type people, very base, evil beasts, People that just were out for themselves and they didn't care who they hurt. And lazy gluttons laying around eating all day, not wanting to work for a living. And of course, that people group have long since gone. They're not around anymore. Let me write to you the good words of G. Campbell Morgan, a book that I never start any book in the Bible without reading the survey of the entire book by G. Campbell. He's phenomenal in how he writes and addresses and lays out a book. Did you quote from G. Campbell Morgan last week? Okay. Uh, he says about the group, he said, Thus, in order to show the true spiritual power of the church and the possibility of the lowest exercising it, the most difficult soil was selected. The most difficult circumstances were employed. And of those in the midst of trying and impossible conditions of life, the finest possibilities were postulated. postulated. Now he writes kind of eloquently, but you ought to learn to read difficult writing. Basically, Cam G. Campbell says this, in the most difficult society, in the most difficult soil, God does his most phenomenal work in the lives of people. He, he's not scared to plant his church in the basis of communities, in the hardest of people groups. In fact, that's where he does his best work. Well, notice chapter 1. It begins with a long sentence. 
And you got to know that Greeks were famous for long sentences. Titus was a Greek himself. So in Paul's writing, it shows his versatility being a Jew, many times being able to, to form these very intricate Greek long sentences. That's what they were known for. This shows you the intelligence of Paul, his ability in a literary sense. Look at verse, verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a certain... Now we're going to go back. We're just introducing the book now, so I'm not going to lay into all these verses. But he calls himself a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. We will talk about that. And their knowledge of the truth. Let's start right there. And their knowledge of, a, of the truth, which accords, which aligns, which is firmly connected with godliness. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and that the proper time manifested in it. See, I, I, was gonna, I was not going to read the whole sentence, but you get so tied into his thoughts and his progressive you know, ability to put it all together, I couldn't stop myself. So I want to stop myself and say this. It is the truth that he is preaching, the knowledge of the truth, and that truth is connected to godliness. That's incredibly vital to, to grasp. See? If we say we have a knowledge of the truth and the expression of God is not in our lives, there's a disconnect. I was chatting with my good friend last week, uh, Mike Roddy, and it was a very profitable, I was very surprised, it was a very profitable conversation, and, and we, we overcame some hurdles together. We're not completely there, but we're close. And the longer you talk to folks, the more you uncover what's below the surface. And he said, you know, I've had two or three families in my church who came to me and they talked about grace. And they didn't like the things I was saying because it was all about grace. He said all they wanted to talk about is Romans. That's all they wanted to talk about is the book of Romans. And all they could talk about is grace, grace, grace. He said, Mike, they were the most unsubmissive, lazy, they, they did nothing as far as benefiting the ministry. They were lackadaisical spiritually. And that was one of his struggles. I said, Mike, what you're looking at is the abuse of the doctrine of grace. I said, the very reason I wrote the book that I did was to overcome and help educate and help inform that when there is true understanding of grace, there is a cutting off of sin, and there is a godliness and beautiful godly life that comes out. What we believe and teach produces a godliness that the legalist could never even touch. But never fool yourself. If there's fleshly drives that dominate your life, that is not grace. In fact, in chapter 2, Take a look with me in chapter 2. A couple of the verses in verse 11 through 13, I memorized these as a young Christian. It was one of the first memory things the navigators gave me to memorize. I don't regret those days of memorization. This is one of the first 11, 12, and 13. Phenomenal verses. It says, For the grace of God has appeared. Stop there and look at the end of verse 13. The appearing of the, of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are bookends of the first and second advent. 
when he came the first time in the Bethlehem and at the cross, the grace of God appeared. When he comes back as the lion of the tribe of Judah, it says the glory of our great God will appear. So you have these bookends of his first and second coming. Well, notice what's going on in between the bookends. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us, the King James is teaching us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the midst of an island of Crete where there are evil beasts, slow bellies, and liars. In the midst of an island where everyone's corrupt and the native population is savage, you live unsavage. They're lying. You tell the truth. They're lazy. You go to work. See? The effect of the gospel. In fact, um, notice verse 10. This is along a list of bond servants and older women and younger women and now the word of God affects each modeled group. In verse 9, it says bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. Uh, they're to be well-pleasing. They're not to be argumentative, pilfering. Don't get your hand in the kitty. Showing all good faith. Notice, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. Adorn. It, it is the same word used when Jesus has the parable of the, the wise virgins. When Christ returns, they trim their lamps. They trim their lamps. They cut them down. They trim their lamps in order to create more light, cutting down carbon within it. It's the carbon, the smoke carbon, that causes the light to go down. They're trimming, they're cutting, they're trimming. It's the same word as adorning. It's the cross cutting the carbon out of our life, trimming us, adorning us. Now, how do you adorn the doctrine of God? If you were to have a sheet of music before you, it would have notes, it would have bars, it would have, and I'm going on territory, I don't even know what I'm talking about, but it would have musical stuff all over. It have a, it would, I think it's called a score. And so with all that music on the page before you, Let's say someone sat down in front of it that was incredibly talented on a particular instrument. And they took that composition, that composure, that, see I'm in the territory, I don't know anyone, the wrong word to use there. And they took that instrument and began to play it. They would adorn the music. Now they haven't created the music, they haven't written the music, they haven't composed the music. They're simply playing what's on the sheet and making it come to life. That's how you and I adorn the doctrine of God. When the inroads of the work of the cross, the inroads of grace, the inroads of his life are transforming us, making us free. When people see that, it's the playing of the instrument of our lives to, to, to what the doctrine, the teachings of God. That's why doctrine is incredibly important. That why you don't, that's why preachers don't need to waste time with fluffy little sermons about how to make 
you know, life a little better for you. It's deep and abiding doctrines that transform life. I can't tell you, and this is a personal note, I was telling Karen this afternoon, if it, one of the, one of the benefits of standing up here, and I know Ed has seen it and Caleb has seen it also, is to look into your eyes and watch the Word of God feed your souls. I see it. Now, there are a few eyes out there that are like this. I get that. That's okay. I always think to myself, they must be on medication at that point. Certainly, I couldn't be boring them to death. But when I look out and I see you guys, and I see your eyes, and I see your expressions, and I watch the Word of God feeding your soul, that's a, that's a huge blessing. That's an incredible thing. And we're fed by doctrine and teaching that feed our souls. Okay, enough personal note. Notice in verse 5, he said, I left you at Crete so that you might... Now this is, I don't know how, this is kind of interesting. This is why, well, the, the why is back up in that long sentence, which we'll go back over when we start the letter itself. Verse 5 said, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained. I wonder what's been going on in all these churches. I wonder if there's been trouble. I wonder if the island people, which they're all island people, I wonder if the legals have got in there and messed it up. I wonder if carnal Christians have been, because there's a lack of organization, there's a lack of structure, there's a lack of leadership, when you have that, everybody does what they want. You know, the, whoever's get the, the strongest voice wins, and there can be chaos. It almost looks like he's trying to reorganize from a situation of chaos. And I know that within our churches today and the world we live in, there's no chaos that happens and goes on. But look, that you may put what remains, what's left of the messes of some of these churches, into order. Now, God is a God of order. Let all things be done decently and in order. And he says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, we're not told whether he directed them simply to appoint the elders or he chose the elders himself to be appointed. But either way, then he gives the qualifications, but I want you to skip down to verse 7. The word used there in the Greek it says, for an overseer. That's the word bishoric, and it's where we get our word bishop from. Some still use that. Uh, in our realm and circles, we use pastor. But I'm fine with the word bishop in other circles. It all means the same thing. But I want you to see that the ESV renders that an overseer. One who keeps his eyes out over the flock. The responsibility of any physical shepherd with a physical flock is to watch the flock, watch the sheep, watch the ones that may wander off, watch the ones you haven't seen for a while, watch the ones who are injured and need care. It's the idea of looking out over a flock of congregation and taking care and love of the sheep. That's a bishop's job. That's a pastor's job. Now, we are not to pry into people's family, family life. We're not to find out what's going on with Brittany by talking to Susan. You know, we're not to, 
you know, just steer into people's lives and just kind of pry and find. Not that Brittany is any, I, I, I picked the sweetest lady in the congregation to pick on right now. See, so, okay, you're good. Because everybody knows there's nothing going on with Brittany. We are not to pry and pick and look. But when situations become clear to us by our not investigating, simply by watching, there are times to speak, there are times to confront, there are times to lovingly speak and talk and counsel, never to hurt, always to help. A pastor can do one of two things. He can let families drift and go, hurting families unattended, and communicate he doesn't care, or he can sit down and talk and care enough to confront, even though the conversation is awkward. I've had conversations in that vein that were very awkward, that left awkward and never resolved. I had, I've had conversations that were instantly resolved, and it was warm and fuzzy, sometimes it's cold and prickly, but the job of the bishop, the pastor, is to lovingly confront sin, situations, that need to be addressed. Period. Overseer right there to look out over. Okay, let's look at a couple more things and then we'll open it up for questions. Um, that is an overview of the book. Let's, let's go down and look at verse 11. Let's go through verse 11 through... No, let's not do that. I hadn't planned on doing that. Let's go to chapter 3. Verse 8. Verse 8 says in chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy. Well, what saying? Whenever you see that in Scripture, this was normally even either a doxology, a benediction, or a psalm in the early church. And many times you'll find Paul quoting these sayings, affirming the biblical accuracy of the sayings, using them in his letters. Kind of interesting. This is probably something they sang. So let's, uh, let's go up to verse 4. That's probably where it starts. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you ever, it, it ever dawns on you as we're reading this, how deep the early church was. Deep in their theology. Deep in their understanding of what's going on. You would think at the very beginning of the church, when the church has been around 15, 20 years, you wouldn't have this kind of depth. But you do. They were blessed with apostles. They were blessed with teachers. They were blessed with Paul. This is the saying, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We'll go back and, and do a little exegetical study on those verses. I just want you to get the capsulized wholeness of the saying in song. My point is in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, what they just sang or, or spoke. And I want you to insist. Notice the imperative to the leader. 
I want you to insist on these things. I want you to be strong in your leadership. I want you to exercise pastoral authority. I want you to insist on these things. Notice, so that you may bully people, so that you may hurt people, so that you may manipulate people. No. That you may, notice, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves, continue themselves, doing good works. See? For those who lead spiritually in the position of a pastor, we are to, by authority, be strong. And it is not for the purpose of jacking the church up and making it what we want. It is to benefit for you. It is for your spiritual growth. Because anyone's falling off from good works never hurts the church. It just doesn't. God is well able to supply plenty of good works from plenty of directions. It doesn't hurt the pastor other than make him sad that good works are not coming out of you like they were. It hurts you. It doesn't benefit you. You're not growing. You're not being set free. You're not being used in the kingdom. So he says insist on these things. Insist on these things because you care, because you want them to grow, that you want God to be glorified in their lives. Okay? So that's a bit of an introduction, and I won't labor the point because it's a short letter. It's three chapters, so I don't want to get into a lot of depth within the verses. I just want to give you the idea that here was Titus on an island, lots of churches, straightening a mess out. The people he was working with were a sorry lot. There's just no other way to say it. They just were a sorry lot. Sometimes churches get into areas and locations that might be going down, and everybody, oh, we got to get out. What do you mean we got to get out? This is the very people he came to die. You know, we got to target this particular group. Target, God targets the human race. You know that, don't you? He doesn't target colors and he doesn't, any people group, he targets human beings. And so we're grateful for who God sends us. That there needed to be order within these churches, that they needed to be led by an elder, a bishop. And look, he doesn't go into ecclesiastical studies. He doesn't go, should there be two or three elders? Should there be one? Should a bishop be over two or three churches? Should there be two or three bishops within a single church? Should there be one bishop to one church? He doesn't go into that. In fact, in the New Testament, you know, there's no final word on what an ecclesiastical order within a church ought to be. There just isn't. The Presbyterians aren't necessarily wrong. Okay? They just aren't. Other people, other church denominations are necessarily wrong. Each church has to decide what their, what their church government is supposed to look like. 